is Anthony Pascal. And this is Laurie Elster, and this is the All Access Star Trek podcast. This week we are going to be reviewing Prodigy Episode 13, All the World's a Stage. And as always, we're going to start with news, and we have a a sort of update, not really, on the (laughs) the next Star Trek movie that is completely on hold at the moment anyway, due to an interview with Zoe Saldana, who's been pretty busy lately. You know, she's the only one we hadn't heard from since J.J. made the announcement last February that they were all coming back. She's busy making Avatar movies and other things. (laughs) Indeed. Uh, She has a new movie out, and... So she was uh, on a podcast and she said all the same things that everyone else has said, which is we all want to do it and it'd be great to get back together again, but we don't know when the schedule can happen. But because this is the first time someone's talked since it was taken off Paramount's schedule, even though she kind of still talked about it as an active thing, she said she thinks it's more than just aligning people's schedules. Specifically, she said, I think as well. It probably has something else to do about the project, but she didn't say what. Like the director leaving or some other things that could have come up. I think the director left for the same reason, that this project isn't moving as fast at Paramount as it should for some reason. I still think it has something to do with money, maybe something to do with their relationship with JJ, which is super complicated. They were like really pissed about, you know, when he went off to do the Star Wars movies, but they need him to deliver these Mission Impossible movies. And Tom Cruise loves J.J., so they it's a very complicated relationship. And I'm not sure what this means for Star Trek. But for, for whatever reason, the head of the studio who was saying, oh, you know, we want to do multiple Star Trek movies, and it's really important to get another live-action movie out, you know, they just haven't pulled the trigger. And they've already announced half their film slate for 2020 for now because with movies we need to think very far in the future right so we're getting to the point where if they're going to do this they they're running out of time to get it into 2024 now (laughs) so uh, you know at 2025 it's like nine years after it's just i don't know yeah it's making a lot less sense to do a movie with this cast as much as i like them but the thing is rot you know robbins who runs paramount said you know we looked into it because there was various plans to do a movie without them and they concluded focus groups and you know they ran the numbers and the best thing they could do is do another movie with these guys but they it's it it's like a catch-22 it's like well there's all of these problems with doing a movie with the cast but then there's all these problems if they don't use that cast right so right now i don't know i know they want to make a star trek movie they want to make many they want to do what DC and Marvel and everyone does with their IPs, which is, you know, squeeze as much money as they possibly can out of them in movie theaters. They just can't figure out how to do it. Right. Well, it's like they want to have a Star Trek movie, but they don't want to make a Star Trek movie. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, they're they're getting their act. I mean, they're doing multiple Transformers movies, multiple Mission Impossible movies. Here's a sad fact. By the time. So let's say they make one of these movies. They will have produced and released three Sonic the Hedgehog movies in between <laughs> the two, you know, the, the Star Trek movies, you know, so they're capable of doing stuff. And, you know, Paramount is doing really well now, you know, so they kind of have their act together, but not with Star Trek. Well, and it's not like those movies were huge hits. When you, Which movies? 
the Star Trek movies. Well, the first one, I mean, the first one was a pretty big movie for Paramount and kind of blew their but, mind how much, you know, he, he, and the second one actually made more money just that it cost more money. They're but just then not the making, third one didn't. And so. Yeah. And they wanted the third one to make like 700 million. It made like less than four. You know, the irony is Chris Pine didn't want to do another one because he wanted to be paid more. But then when he agreed to do this one, he's like, yeah, but don't try to make a lot of money off it. You know, so and it that's the problem with Star Trek is these movies can make half a billion dollars, which is a lot of money. But yep. it's not a billion dollars, you know, which they just did with Top Gun, you know, so their appetite is wet. They want billion dollar movies and we'll see if they can do it with Star Trek. I don't think they can, but. You know, maybe there's a, a, a magic to it, but I think that it's limited uh, because of the nature of the franchise. Yeah. And I also think, you know, we've talked about this before, but Star Trek seems to work best as a TV series or multiple TV series. And yes, some of the movies are great and there's something to enjoy about most of them, but it's not a formula for success. The Star Trek movie franchise in the 80s, they're like, we know how to make these. We're just not going to make them really big but they're all going to be solid earners. First Contact was a big earner, you know, for the franchise. Then they kind of screwed up and spent too much on Insurrection and it sucked. Or Sorry, I know there's people who liked it out there, but it underperformed. And then the one after that underperformed even more, you know, so it, that's the the rub with these is that they it's just hard to make it work. But I, I, I don't know that, you know, they need someone to come, you know, they back over on, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery. They've just brought in their own kind of Kevin Feige, right? So they brought in James Gunn to run the DC studio. Star Trek isn't as big as DC as a whole, you know, or Marvel as a whole, but I still feel like, you know, maybe Paramount needs a franchise guy to be in charge of Transformers, Star Trek, and Mission Impossible or something like that, you know? I also think they need someone to do Star Trek who has some kind of vision for it. And I think J.J. has a million things going on. And yeah, but it it needs to be someone who's beyond the movies. It needs to be someone who's looking at movies, TV, games, right. everything. Yeah, and... I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. And they don't have that person for... And someone who understands Star Trek, they don't, they don't really have that. No, no, not at all. And I think part of the reason that those the jj movies did so well is that there wasn't any tv yeah so there was a vacuum and there were a lot of star trek fans out there who really who were so excited to have it back and it's because of those movies that we have all these shows but it doesn't help make come up with a formula for a better movie or a more successful one i i believe i have faith of the heart that this will happen <laughs> something will happen just I, because i don't anymore well, no, I, I have, you know, just because of that's the way corporations work. This is money on the table. It is a, a big IP. They are going to figure this out. It might not be the Kelvin people, but. I think what they'll try to do is ultimately take something from one of the shows. Some people. Yeah. I mean, just, I, I you know, are they, none of them are big enough stars. I just don't know. Maybe, maybe it's possible. There was a reason why they didn't make an Enterprise movie. And, you know, yeah. Enterprise at its peak had more eyeballs on it than Strange New Worlds, just because of the nature of streaming and, you know, the way media is now. Could Anson Mount carry a $200 million movie? I don't know. No, and then they start getting into booking, you know, a high profile guest star, which is not something they've been successful with either. 
Like everybody was mad about Benedict Cumberbatch, although I'm sure he brought a lot of eyeballs to that movie. He was basically just Sherlock at that point. But he had a certain following. He had no, a certain yeah, and he was growing. A lot of people. And yeah, he yeah. was on the rise at that time. He was, you know, so that was a good, I, I, you know, not a good movie in my opinion, but a good choice for a high profile actor separate from the role and the whole thing of that. And then in the next one, they got like a high profile, gorgeous man. And then they covered him up in makeup. <laughs> now, I mean, I, I've always said that if, if they really want to make sure that they get to the big money, JJ needs to get Tom Cruise to be the villain. Oy. I know if you, you wanted to ruin Star Trek for me, put Tom Cruise in it. Like the only thing you could do worse for me would be to put Adam Sandler in it. <laughs> And then I really would That's have to like, I, I mean, can't come on. It. Tom Cruise is, he's talented. He, he jumps off buildings. He, you know, he's, I don't care. It's, it's a whole just... different ball game. I mean, anyway, let's move and on. Let's, let's move on to the Picard auction. <laughs> so season three of Picard comes in February and it's become basically tradition for CBS and Paramount. Um, they sell the stuff. And so they are doing an auction of just season one and two stuff for now. 300 lots, props and costumes, a few set pieces. There's an article on our site. Things as small as a badge to full-on Borg costume. Yeah, like Agnes Gerardi as the Borg. That costume, which, you know, if you have a good, let's say, you know, $7,000, you could <laughs> exactly. maybe try to get. I mean, it's, I mean, I mean, it's incredible stuff, but I, it's a whole world of people who can afford to spend their money on these things the season three stuff it'll be interesting if they sell that or they're going to hold on to it uh for terry's possible spinoff so there's nothing like you can't get a piece of the stargazer in this auction you know they're, right they're, all that stuff <laughs> is you know they're holding on to that for now but you know i wouldn't be surprised if that shows up on auction some other day yeah it might eventually they've sold a bunch of discovery stuff before season five production so they you know people are like oh that must mean the show's over it's like no they just don't need the stuff anymore no and that's like a long-standing tv thing anyway yeah yeah before we get to prodigy another business thing this is for our european friends so you could skip ahead if you don't live in europe but half of europe is getting paramount plus basically the biggest countries in europe by december they'll pretty much all be covered then the rest of Europe, Paramount's doing a deal with Comcast and this thing called Sky Showtime, which is slowly rolling out. Last weekend, they did a big event in Amsterdam. Ethan Peck and Rebecca Romaine were there for the red carpet. The, the key thing to know is that it doesn't have everything that's on Paramount+. Plus. And when it comes to Star Trek, it only has Strange New Worlds and Prodigy, but not Discovery. And this is kind of weird. Even though Prodigy is there, as new episodes of Prodigy are coming out, they're not going up. So I think they wait until the season finishes and then probably put them up, which will probably be the same next year for Strange New Worlds. Anyway, there's more details on the site. You could see video of Ethan and Rebecca on the Did you carpet. watch that, by the way? Yeah, it's, it's fun. Uh, I thought it was a little painful. It was like the per I felt I felt like the person who was talking to them just wa found out that she was going to be doing that like five minutes. Earlier. Right. Well, she's interviewing everyone. She had a card on it. It said their names and the word Star Trek next to it. And that's all she knew. She kept saying, are you excited? Yeah, we're excited. Are you happy? How do you feel? Uh, we're so happy. OK, anyway, I <laughs> it's just a little bit painful, but they looked great. And uh, lucky them they got to go to Amsterdam. 
Yeah, on the company dime. There you go. Yeah, that's my dream, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're we're moving on to Prodigy. Not quite our review yet because we have a few more things to talk about. One of them is a is a very interesting theory that we sort of started to talk about on the pod last week, and then you really fleshed it out and wrote it all up for the site about connecting zero to the Borg. Sort of zero as the connection between the Borg at the end of Voyager and then the Borg in Star Trek Picard and whatever's coming next. All the way through to Discovery. Yeah. And Lower Decks, you know, because you forgot that Lower Decks had a scene on a Borg cube, which is set after Voyager, but before Prodigy, showing them just dormant, which feeds into the theory that the Borg were all dormant. And didn't they release like a very long extended soothing video that was just the sound for like <laughs> yeah, 40 minutes <laughs> they, they did it was just that on on loop but aaron watke our listener and he commented to the our co- listener <laughs> he's also executive producer of the show oh fair enough yes <laughs> uh, we've interviewed him on the pod and he commented to our last podcast which was included in that theory article basically defending the idea well but that if it weren't for the events of Picard, the galaxy wouldn't have been saved. Therefore, if it's true that Zero woke up the Borg, you know, you're welcome. Yeah, they saved everybody. <laughs> right. I, anyway, I interviewed him. Mostly we talk about this week's episode, which he wrote. But we did talk a little bit about that. And he, the interesting thing is he said all the showrunners got together and, and decided this is what happened after Voyager you know, in their writer canon, even though it hasn't all been laid out on the shows, but basically that the Borg were decimated, but he he isn't going to come down and say, yes, every cube was dormant. He's saying maybe some were, maybe some weren't, but Janeway really did a number on the collective and the cube that they found may or may not be the artifact. He, he said he, he likes the idea if it were, because he's a fan of small worlds but he's not going to confirm or deny. Um, right. Well, were. because they want, obviously everybody needs the flexibility to do something else if they need to. I have to say that's a meeting. That's like my fantasy meeting. These are all my fantasies going, being paid to go to Amsterdam <laughs> and sitting in a room with a bunch of showrunners talking about the fate of the Borg after Endgame. I would just love to sit and listen and jump in to that entire conversation. But it's good that they're having this conversation. And yeah. it, it's... A, but it's important conversation to have, you know, that someone they need to decide because if each shows has a different fate for the Borg, that's a problem. No, I think it's great that they're having the conversation. I love when these things are tied together in a way that makes sense. And I love that for I am sure for all of them, it was a fascinating and fun time, especially the, you know, Terry and Aaron and, you know, Mike, Mike you know, yeah, yeah who just love this kind of stuff they all do but yeah because they're because they're us you know yeah <laughs> we are one aaron's also doing these weekly janeway logs second one came out this week the kind of fun little connection in it was that dr gnome jason alexander um has determined that the diviner Vaunicott, their physiology is similar to the zalconians very random (laughs) very very random deep cut to tng but they're the people who were turning into energy beings and they had this kind of psychokinesis capability so he was beverly's friend and they he'd lost his memory but he was actually evolving 
and his people were coming after him to kill him because they didn't want everyone to know that they could all evolve into powerful beams of light. So, you know, I asked Aaron about just in general, are, you know, are we getting hints? You know, and he, you know, he did say that things that are going to show up on the show later will make more sense if you're watching these logs. Um, and that there are hints, you know, sometimes it's a fun connection, but sometimes there are hints. So it's definitely worth watching these Star Trek logs on Instagram or on Trek movie. We'll put them up every week. You know, they're fun. They're recorded by Mulgrew. In her kitchen. Almost certainly in her kitchen, <laughs> <laughs> which is where the coffee is. Sure. So that makes sense. I almost feel like she's standing over it waiting for it to be ready. <laughs> Um, but they're good they're short they're like two minutes tops and they're fun and and worth if you're really invested in the show it's a great little supplementary piece and it might give you hints or at least just get your brain spinning um before we get into the episode 13 review a couple little fun things from the interview he confirmed that jellico will arrive let you know soon and is in at least a couple episodes because, you know, remember last year they announced that, you know, Jason Alexander, Jamila Jamil and David Diggs, uh, you know, were all part of the season. And they showed up in like the last 10 seconds and some of them didn't even say anything. I know. Um, I'm like, which ones did you do? <laughs> so I thought like, is that, are they going to do that again? Are they pulling a, that, uh, you know, but he promised no. Uh, he did say that Jellico is going to be in more than one episode and he said, we'll see him soon. And that there's a reason he shows up. Um, and basically that, you know, Vice Admiral Janeway is going to have to communicate with him, which we knew, you know, they talked about that, I think, at Comic-Con. I think they're going to be a conflict. There's a conflict yes. between them, I think, is what we're, which, where we're headed. Yeah. And I have a feeling it's going to he's going to probably tell her to abandon the search for Chakotay and give it up and that she's not going to be willing to because we've already seen just how deeply personal this is i mean she's watching she's in the holodeck like watching the last moment that she saw him so there's obviously something going on there it's an interesting and idea so maybe janeway's going gonna go rogue i think it's possible that she's going to or she's gonna have to make some deal so that she can do it but they're definitely going to come into conflict over it or he'll be hovering over her and they'll have that extra pressure i mean there are a lot of ways they can go but obviously i think that's going to be the point of contention the other thing that some of the nerdier fans like myself like to know is where are they? You know, if I pull out my stellar cartography book, you know, so he's confirmed that since episode 11, when they found the relay station, they've been in the beta quadrant. So they were in the Delta quadrant. Now they've been in the beta quadrant and will remain. So he hinted, I think you're going to get a lot of beta quadrant in the next few episodes. And do you think next few means the rest of this season? Yes, and yeah. putting pieces together, I because he pointed out they're like above the Romulans, if you're looking at the map, part of the Federation kind of wraps around the Romulans on top. And so that's where they are, kind of between the Romulans and the border with the Delta Quadrant. And we've already heard from Ben Haban that we're going to get Romulans. So we're going to get Romulans. I, th I think we're heading for Romulan space because they got to kind of go if they're going. Well, they're not really going towards the Federation anymore, but they're close enough to the Romulans that I think they're going to end up running into some Romulans. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. So wait till they learn about cloaking devices. Wait, did, does the Project Star cloak? No, it doesn't. Does it? No. No. 
I don't think so. I know. It's so, like remember when the remember when the discovery just started cloaking? You're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> when... <laughs> you can't cloak. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's hard to keep track of all these things. Right. And then I'm like, the Dauntless, can that you know, they're all these different. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be interesting to see out Picard. You know, does everyone cloak now? Does the Titan cloak? Well, you know. I bet it doesn't, because it's kind of a cheat. Yeah. Okay. So should we talk about an actual episode of prodigy i think we should i think we should talk about the current episode of prodigy which is called all the world's a stage i'm gonna jump right in because i have to say that i had such a strange experience watching this one that I, especially you know i tend to enjoy every prodigy it, i had to the second viewing was the one where i could enjoy it and the first viewing as it progressed through the episode and we saw the you know the shatner guy and the sets that looked like the original series and all of that stuff it was a little frustrating to me because i kept thinking well did they watch a tv show like i don't they're they're acting as if they've seen the tv show and not as if they've heard stories and then at the very end when we find out oh it's garavik was the person who connected with this culture who would have had first-hand knowledge of all of those things then when i watched it again i could watch it without that frustration and confusion i get what you're coming from i didn't need that bit at the end to enjoy it i enjoyed it from start to finish i kind of got the joke right away which is as soon as they started talking like about the you know star flight i'm like okay these people know something about the federation they've, they've been culturally contaminated by the federation somehow and you know, that's what this all is like, you know, that they have they've got something they've got, you know, a piece of a ship or there's some, you know, we're going to find something in this episode, which is how they know all this stuff. Right. In my interview with Aaron, he kind of goes through all of that. It, it, strangely, he he didn't come up with that original idea of uh, the original idea came from an, another writer. Deandra Pendle Pendleton Thompson. Right. And she's like, what if a primitive race found captain's logs and started acting them out that was idea one and then he said okay well, what if they found a red shirt because he's kind of obsessed with red shirts and that's <laughs> led him to you know and the kind of their fate and that led him to you know like what if a red shirt that they left behind actually survived and that led him to garavik from obsession they didn't leave him behind an obsession he obviously you know, he's making up this idea that later on in season two of TOS, Garavik was lost, and you know now we finally found him. Right, but the 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 difference for me, like I was with the beginning the the beginning part, but some of the details were so just were so specific, like the sounds and certain character behaviors that it just it I had to look at it through different eyes. So when I had to look at it, okay, now it's a guy who personally knew all those people, which is why he was describing them that way. And then you have centuries of broken telephone of all the information that he's given them, right? This primitive society. But they showed like a, a video screen, like they had something, you know, they definitely had something to look at. They probably had some recordings, you know, that, that I don't know. It just didn't. Um... Wait, why would he have recordings of bridge sounds if he's on the shuttlecraft? You know, I didn't know that. Aaron suggested perhaps he had training tapes on the shuttlecraft. Yeah. I mean, you never know what's going to bug you. Like, but that was right. the, I got all mixed up on 
like when the transporter worked and didn't work and the interference and, but was the interference there before the shuttle crashed and why did they leave him behind? You know, that, that kind of thing of, you know, so you never know what the thing is that's going to get your craw as it were, but you know, I get what you're saying, but it didn't bug me. It didn't bug me once I had more of a reason for it. And then I also started thinking about the audience for a minute too. And I thought like, if you're watching this with your kids and you're a casual Star Trek fan, then it's great. Like it's very funny because it's all the sort of extreme things about Star Trek that are in the public consciousness, whether or not you have watched the show. But they're not bad stereotypes. Like there's a lot of bad stereotypes. So you know, James T. wasn't a Lothario. Right, right. It was all like the beautiful things about Starfleet. And it, it really was about this planet of people who believed in Starfleet. And what makes this episode work is the message of this episode and the impact it has on Dow. So this is a Dow episode. Yes. And that's that is what I loved about it. And I thought it was also in a way about fans and the way they look at Star Trek, because it's also a reminder of like, what is the thing that we love about it? And what is at the core of Starfleet and Star Trek? And then Dal having to figure out for himself when he's feeling like an imposter, recognizing like they're not really imposters and he's not really an imposter. Right. I loved the lesson of it and I enjoyed some of the way that they, got there and then i had a very fun experience because i wasn't loving the the shatner guy you know the whole <laughs> over the top thing i just wasn't enjoying it but then when i decided you know what i'm gonna rewatch obsession it's been a long time that is the most posy shatner ever in that episode he yeah he's he could, well because <laughs> he he's is, so troubled i mean that, that's just, even at very... the beginning he's so over the top posy yeah. So it is. So then I sort of laugh. I was able to laugh a little more and I certainly enjoyed the episode and there were a million things along the way. And the main story was what I liked. So it was just a little, some little detail things, but the message of it and the effect that it had on our main characters was bought on and beautifully executed. All of that, of course, makes sense. If you think of a society that has been passing down this oral tradition of James T., and right. He became exaggerated over the years. And, and the voice was done by Deed Bradley Baker, who does tons of voices for the show, no, most notably Murph. Yep. It was clear he was not doing Shatner. He was doing Kevin Pollack doing Shatner. You yeah. Know what I mean, he was doing a Saturday Night Live version of Shatner. And there was a reason for that. It wasn't he wasn't making fun of Shatner. It's just kind of like that's how this character evolved, you know, because. He's probably the fifth or sixth generation of people who took on this role for this society. So, no, I was I mean, it's such a celebration of everything that we love about mm -hmm. Star Trek. And it was just fun. And I think it will be fun for people who it's hard to know nothing about Star Trek, but, you know, nothing at all. You know, but there are people who won't even get that this is related to something well i think anyone who sees oh this is you know fake spock what do you call him spork was that what <laughs> sprock what was he <laughs> i first spork would be funny Must it wasn't spork. Spork. It, was, it was it was it was sprock sprock so i mean everybody everybody knows who spock is and everybody knows it's not sprock so right. and spock was a character in season one and i think kirk has been mentioned as well yeah 
But everyone knows Spock. Everyone knows Spock and Kirk. I mean, my 15 year old's friend just the other night was like, I, I only know Spock. Oh, and Kirk and the guy with the thing in front of his eyes, which would be Jordy. But that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's and it, and it was part of the culture of this planet, the storytelling legacy that they have where they're passing information along and it's not and it's coming through in kind of a messed up way which is how things actually work so uh, all that part was great and i have to say at the end i'm skipping when they were on the ship and they switched it over to look like original series and sound like it so that they could feel comfortable and know how to work the controls that was a that was a nice little emotional swell like that was a nice little moment that was fun although see then you know because i'm like a ship nerd i'm like okay so what happened to the stuff that was there (laughs) like (laughs) there was a console there there was a chair there like if they put a holographic control but that some of you know it didn't fit in the same space right right some of them were smaller and and i did i did nitpick that with aaron he's like well they beamed that stuff to the cargo bay while they put the holographic controls okay fine i'll take it yeah no it's good i mean it was i had the same moment and then i you know i saw your interview and i was like yeah i'll take that it works because it was such a rewarding moment oh yeah no i was it was fun and you know i love to play it immediately reminded me of two things which is of course the futurama episode where everyone's worshiping star trek (laughs) and um the Mad Max Thunderdome. I don't know if that's a cultural moment for you. Not for me, sadly. Sorry. But there's, you know, well, so it's a post-apocalypse and, you know, Mad Max finds this group of kids out in, you know, the wilderness and they tell the story of this captain and, and, and it's all, and they, all their words are wrong because they, you know, it's 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 a little Lord of the Flies, you know, where they but they're telling they have this built this oral tradition about this, the captain of this um, plane that crashed in the jungle, you know, right after the apocalypse. And it's all very similar, you know, where they talk about the pocky lips and stuff like that. So and, and Aaron said that he was this that was something that he picked up on as well. But I, I immediately and I'm sure a lot of fan older fans are going to pick up on that. There's also a Voyager episode where Balana is like advising. She's trapped on some planet or something, and there's a playwright, and she's giving him all the stories for his play. So it reminded me just a little bit of that. Muse. Yes, not a favorite episode, but I but I got it. <laughs> and a little bit of the Royale, right? A little bit of the Royale, and then also I would say it reminded me for one second, maybe a millisecond, of Discovery when they talked about. Was it Calypso? Was it the short trek where they talked about the Vidrash, which was Federation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. How yeah. language can evolve over time. Yeah, that's sure. interesting. But it was fun. You know, I love what Pog is sitting there eating his... He wasn't eating popcorns. It was some like grubs or something, but it looked like popcorn. He was. He got <laughs> so into it. Like then he got scared when scary things happened. He was really enjoying it. He. It was an interesting, even though this was a Dal episode, you know, it starts off with him doubting himself and doubting the mission. Like almost questioning why he's putting on a uniform, which I thought was such a great touch. Which is what James T. Kirk went through when he was on the Farragut, which is retold in the episode 
Obsession, but more Garvik went through that kind of arc on uh, Obsession. Right. Do I deserve to be here? I shouldn't yeah. be here. Yeah. But everyone was slotting into their roles well. So, you know, Zero's the doctor and Pog is the engineer and he was doing engineering things and Brock had to come down and do science things. What, what was interesting with Gwen in this episode is you know, she had to step up. Yeah. To lead. You know, and 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 challenge Dal kind of like how Spock and McCoy did in Obsession. Yep. So she was really, the, you know, a very strong leader. This is a good episode for her as well. But eventually, you know, Dal got his act together. Once he got cured. Here's what I liked about Jankum in this episode. So he starts out and he's first of all, it's nice to remember he's still a kid, sort of a teenager, because when Murph is sick and Rock Talk is staying with Murph, he immediately does what every sibling of every sick kid has ever <laughs> yeah. done in the history of going to school, which is, I don't think I, I think I'm feeling sick too, tries to stay back. And the whole time he keeps saying, I'm not going to do it. I want to go. That's enough for Jankum. Pog's had enough. And then all of a sudden, after all of this fear and trying to get out of things and not wanting to be there, he's the one who jumps in and does this really brave thing. And is like, just give me a royal Tellerite funeral. But is, is takes the biggest risk. Yeah, because he had an engineering chair. He had something to do. Yeah, I think is really like he's like because they show you know, they show up. It's a beautiful planet. He's like, you know, he's bored. Well, I think he was scared. I think he just wanted to go back. That's true. Yeah. But we saw him earlier, like trying to f break the living construct, which is dangerous. So I, I feel like Pog is, he's like a squirrel. <laughs> he just, <laughs> he, you know, unless he's got something right in front of him that's of interest to him, you know, he loses interest immediately. Right. Um, but he was scared. He was trying he was to scared. run away. Yeah. So I, and I like that he, We'll say when he's scared, which is also a tough thing. I mean, so many little lessons and great moments for kids along the way. But him saying Jankum Pug is afraid is a brave thing to say. Absolutely true. You know, the question is, is he is this a little arc for this episode or, you know, are we going to see his cowardice come back? I think it's who he is all the time. I think he is all of those things all of the time. And I think he's not likely to change that drastically yeah you're probably right by the way you mentioned we we mentioned briefly murph getting sick so we should you know that they are definitely playing the long game but i think next episode oh yeah has to be the metamorphosis right because you were right about the cocoon he's in a cocoon of some kind did i say cocoon i said butterfly but i guess yeah that makes sense butterfly that... implies cocoon to me because that's what happens before you become a butterfly but because yeah. i thought you know pregnant which i'm not, not saying wings although no you just cool mean if a, trans could a if you could fly that'd be cool too oh flying murph would be fun yeah i was just re-watching the bit where they're from earlier in the season where they're beaming like the pie all over the place and then they start beaming Murph and he's like sliding down the <laughs> the, the ship on the outside with that squeaky sound <laughs> yeah hopefully they don't you know that the, the, the new Murph is still provides those laughs and fun you know so oh, I mean I would hope they wouldn't ruin a winning thing yeah exactly they they they, they know what they got so yeah. I'm sure it'll be <laughs> you know, Murph with some new bells and whistles, whatever those are. 
Yes. So, uh, you know, as you said, this does have a direct connection to canon, which is Garavik. But more importantly, the thing we learn is the Galileo shuttle, which is the kind of iconic USS Enterprise shuttle made most famous in the season one episode, the Galileo 7, where it was destroyed. But it came back in season two. You know, and it was fine, but presumably that was a different Galileo. Then in season three, it came back again, but they started calling it the Galileo 2, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was watching this, I was thinking, okay, now since this is the Galileo that uh, and the Garavik episode was in season two, this kind of explains why the replacement Galileo needed to be replaced again in season three. And I guess at that point, they said, let's just give it a, a new name, the Galileo 2, uh, which was the third. Not Galileo. really a new name. <laughs> right. But they all had the same number, right? It was NCC 1701 slash 7, right? So they're all, they all, you're, you, there's only one position, you know, in their fleet of shuttles that's shuttle number 7. So once they lost one, they replaced it. So this is the, se- you know, presumably the second Galileo that was lost although they never said it was lost well it happened is, in between the episodes that we saw right so now we know why they renamed it in season three right i mean obviously this isn't what they were thinking in 1969 but what do you mean uh, <laughs> but they've kind of filled in a piece of star trek canon that was my head canon and so i asked aaron about that and he said yeah that's basically it this is like a the minorest tiniest bit of star trek lore has, you know, been added now. Yeah, it's filled in a little piece, which I like. A tiny little gap of, you know, an extra half sentence in Memory Alpha is now going to be completed. And those guys are going to be happy as clams. Finally. I also thought they were, um, I don't know if they were doing this on purpose or not, but I thought, I felt like they were maybe sowing the seeds for future canon when... You know, it, it was technically second contact. And so when they left the planet, they gave them some tech, right? They gave yes. them some medical tech and some other stuff. And I, and, but they're still not a warp capable society, but they had already been there. But I do think that it does raise some questions about the rigidity of the prime directive. And that I would love to see in some of the Star Treks that are taking place in more or less the same time period or ahead, bigger discussions about the prime directive. And whether it's okay to just, I mean, they bring it up in Lower Decks, right? In a way where Picard had left the drug addict society just to yeah. deal with stuff on their own. Like, we can't help, we can't step in, we can't do these things. And here they made this, they were like, it's stupid. They need the technology. They've had this problem that was actually caused by us anyway, but now they know about us, so here it is. And I think it's it might be a good time for for Starfleet to start thinking about, well, maybe we can open this up just a little bit and think more about it. Like, if you could cure a plague, is it bad to cure a plague? It's a good question. It's a, it's a complicated... It's I don't think there are any easy answers, but I would love to see the shows explore that. Well, if you could cure a plague without letting the civilization know you did it, I think that is allowed under the... To, certainly... Right. TOS but I- rules. Maybe Jean-Luc Picard. You know, it depends on how, you know, this is the prime directive has some wiggle room in it. That's the wiggle room of you're not allowed to do anything at all ever versus you can do something as long as they don't see you do it. 
which we saw in the two in episode eleven, right, with the whales. Right, and I'm talking about what's in between that, which is, or maybe it's after that. But it's are there times that you go, yeah, we we are going to be the ones that reveal that there's more out there. So I just to me it's a very yeah, no, interesting it's, question. It, it is the thing I was curious. I should have asked Aaron about this when they were closing up the cave. In in that moment, there's a Dal Captain's Log supplemental. Which he's and getting he, really good at, by the way. He's getting good at. He's did it. You know, th- this episode, he did his captain's log correctly for the first time. Yep. Where, where he said captain's log, star date, and the star date. And um, everything he reported was great. I, I, I made a yeah. note that he's getting better at it. But he said, Janeway says the rules about second contact are a bit fuzzy. Yeah. Which I thought was maybe a little bit of a, a nod towards the issues, I think, you know, that were brought up by Captain Freeman, maybe. Yeah. Well, these guys are all having conversations. And beca- and again, it goes back to they love talking about Star Trek. So I feel like even when they're not very focused on this moment of the shows that they need to work out, they are having these great conversations. I mean, it's interesting because these two shows are very close together, Lower Decks and Prodigy. Have we seen any actual connection between the two of them yet? Well, we know we're getting Okona. Right. <laughs> But, I mean, is he going to mention that he DJed at a party? I don't know. You know, I don't think he will. But uh, <laughs> I hope he does now. Well, th- I think one of the issues is I, I think these episodes were written so far in advance that, I'm you know, but it'd be interesting to get a, like a mention of the California class or something. It'd be fun, you know. Yeah. They, they are very close in time. Anyway, any f- favorite lines or little bits? Well... I did like, you know, before we get to the Jane, the Admiral Janeway stuff, um, <laughs> I did like wearer of crimson, bravest among us. I liked that interpretation of what a red shirt is. <laughs> I liked as they came into the kind of scrap metal enterprise and everyone was practicing. There were people in the background practicing Kirk Fu. I know. I was again, that was another one where I was like, but. Why would that be something that was communicated? And But it was fast. I mean, it was there for a joke, basically. So it was okay. I also liked the um the uh, the hilarious onstage death of the guy pretending to be Ensign. <laughs> First, he pretends to be sort of swimming in space, like he's on top of this table. <laughs> and then he does this very overdone death. To show you how things were overdone, and at the end, they started incorporating the protostar into their play and they built a cutout of Jankum, but Jankum was huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're already seeing them distorting reality, you know, right. that this is how, you know, is you know, they can get certain, you know, details wrong as it were. And it also it's it's a truth of of humanity, which is that eyewitnesses are very unreliable. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's partly this funny culture that took everything and stretched it or just, you know, in communicating information over the generations, things get changed and lost. But it's also just something we do. And if you st- you know, have it, if you have five people watching a car accident, they're all going to have very different stories of what happened and the order in which things happen. And they're going to be very sure that their version is right. Indeed. So turning to the Jane, I mean, there, there's very very little Admiral Janeway group. I mean, like maybe a minute through the episode and they never followed up. So um, we're not getting a lot of uh, OG Janeway. 
But we do know that they are tracking that escape pod. Right. The one I'm like, where did that escape pod go? Right. They're tracking it and they know that he was picked up by an unidentified ship and now they're tracking that ship. I guess there was a planet in that system or something that they didn't mention before. Well, a ship. They said it was a ship. Right. But the the pod crash landed on some icy planet they showed. That must have been in the same system as the... Um, relay station even though they never they didn't show the relay station like orbiting or anything because i was like where's he going you know you right. can only get so far in one of these things it was just to the left <laughs> <laughs> sure it was there the whole time the thing i like about it is you can see not about the escape pod but about janeway is is all and is all the information that she's getting that's going to make her think these kids are just terrible that whoever's yeah. you know that that Chakotay's been taken prisoner and that these kids are that whoever's taken the ship destroyed something so it's it's the setup is really powerful and believable right I mean she ends it by saying this isn't a rescue mission for Chakotay it's a manhunt for the people who took him I thought she was gonna say it's a good old-fashioned space race but she didn't (laughs) say that (laughs) as we expected the diviner isn't super chatty um (laughs) You know, he's still a little crazy town, which is good. Yes. You know, so then they have to kind of figure out what's going on just using the little pieces of this and that. But they still think he's a good guy. Right. He seems like a victim. Yep. Right. You know, every villain is the hero of their own story and they're only getting (laughs) his side of the story and it's only pieces of his side of the story. And it's they took my daughter. My progeny. Yeah. Yeah, which is eminently, yeah, it's it's the pieces he says are just enough for them not right. to have suspicion. It'll, I just, you know, it just feels like Janeway's too smart. I mean, there's only so long this could go on before she starts. Like, I'm betting eventually pieces of a story don't match up and she's going to put it together because it's just going to get a little ridiculous if he can really fool her. Well, I think if at some point they restore his sanity then she's going to be able to see through him because he'll be acting like himself even if he's trying to be sneaky about it you know he's he's a villain and she'll spot him this is all reminding me a little and you'll remind me of the episode name which i can't remember i think it was nemesis where chakotay is captured and Mm -hmm. he's with one group of aliens who are fighting another group and he thinks they're all great and they're victims. And then in the end he finds out, you know, and then Janeway shows up with like the super monster looking alien, but it turns out he's like a a nice guy. Right. They're Um, rescuing him. They're rescuing Dakota instead of coming against him. Yeah. Yeah. So he had it wrong the whole time. It's kind of, this whole season is a bit of a reverse of that because Chakotay is lost somewhere and Janeway's, you know, with, the bad guy this time instead of the good guy right so. i know it's pretty it's fascinating and i'm so ready for the twists and turns that are coming what do you think you know because you had your initial reaction i feel like this episode will be that fans are going to love this episode but that there's going to be some fans who don't because they feel like it's too campy or it doesn't make sense that they know so much and they'll get into those weeds or they might feel like it's making fun of fans. I don't think it is. Def- I don't definitely. Think it is I think the point is that a fan is a fan. And 
Starfleet ideals are Starfleet ideals. And in a way it was saying it's okay. Like all of these people who were doing what's what looked to us like a parody understood what it was all about and had the spirit of Starfleet and therefore Star Trek in their hearts. Yeah, exactly. That they believed the right way, you know, that they 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 really were the best of Starfleet, even though right. they weren't of Starfleet. Yep. And uh and the Federation. Now, I I feel like it's a celebration of fandom. It's a celebration of Star Trek. But I am sure that there's going to be some people out there who don't see it that way. Well, that was my, my initial reaction was frustration. And then yeah. knowing the other piece helped a lot. I yeah. still didn't love the Shatner thing, even though watching Obsession made me like dislike it less. <laughs> but know, you I, just you just read a Shatner book. I think you got a little too much Shatner on the brain. Yeah, I might be a little Shatnery, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. I think it was I a also... love letter to Star Trek. It was a love letter, you know, and and you know, D. Bradley Baker. It was his love letter to Shatner. And here I'm going to fill in a missing piece of my Shatner history, which is <laughs> as a child. When I loved Star Trek and became obsessed to the point that I started irritating everybody around me, everyone used to pick on Shatner in my house. Like everyone <laughs> made fun of him. I won't even repeat the the nicknames and things that they called him, but everybody. So I've spent my life like trying to defend, either hide or defend my Shatner love. So maybe that's part of it for me. <laughs> it's triggering. And I'm putting that in air quotes, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but so maybe that's part of it too is i always feel like oh everybody with the mocking of the shatner all the time so maybe it ties into my personal childhood history okay that's uh, <laughs> that's that's deep <laughs> let's sidebar on that one um <sighs> how long have you had this problem Lori? yeah no it's <laughs> so let's put my shatner childhood trauma aside <laughs> and finish up with the episode i do have one funny little nitpick which okay. is just that if these people were waiting so long and their whole culture was built on waiting for Starflight and that they sent the message, they just didn't seem as excited as I wanted them to be when they first found them. Interesting. I mean, they, they did talk about the prophecy and like that first moment when they in the in the you know, when they first encountered them before they were with all the people and they're like to the bridge. Um, I just felt like they're it's just they they were a little bit like, oh, they find they're finally here. <laughs> well, they they had such faith that that star flight would show up one day that uh, it didn't surprise any of them. Uh, <laughs> okay, <laughs> that they they were there. I don't know, but no, you're right. There's probably a, a little of that, but that's minor. My favorite little detail, like because they got all these little details wrong, is when Sul U was on the bridge. He didn't say "Oh my," he said "My my." <laughs> You know, and live logs and proverb. I mean, all those things were just fun. Right. And they're making the W sign, but they eventually worked that out at the end. Right. So, and that's all some people can do anyway, still. <laughs> on my, that's all I could do on my left hand. On my right hand, I could do right. it correctly. So I can do it. And then, oh, one other thing I want to bring up just about um, on the ship when Rock Talk was taking care of Murph. And was like almost crying and so scared for him and taking the sample going, what's happening to you? I was like, maybe Rock could become a a doctor. Rock has a very good bedside manner that's and was true. taking a sample and doing some analysis. I mean, I don't really think that's where they're going to go, but I just thought it's one of the many science options in front of Rock. 
Well, we've seen sciencey people get involved with the diagnosis, you know, Dax or various people at certain times, but it seems like they've slotted Zero, who started as kind of navigator and still does that, um, or Helms being, but <laughs> is is really the doc. Although I loved when Dal asked Zero if they've ever created a, an anecdote, <laughs> anecdote before. And uh, they said, uh, I skimmed the manual or something. Right. But then managed, they did manage to put it together in record time. Like that information came in and then boom. And I'm like, you know what? It's fine. We don't need a prolonged scene of a montage of zero trying to figure things out. Zero staring into test tubes. Yeah, like it's fine. We got it. We got it. It's We're all set. And I I think everyone is slotting into their roles. And because we did see that rock used science when she got to the cave and they started sorting everything out. And, yep. You know, so I, I, I still feel like I think probably by the end of the season, rock will probably pick something maybe even though I don't know, maybe not, you know, but the, I hope we see some trial and error along the way. Cause that yeah. could be fun. But yeah. I think every member of that crew is becoming more valuable and learning how to work together more in every episode that's the ultimate thing and they definitely showed that in this episode the whole you know you couldn't <laughs> it's always the thing of you know certain technologies are going to stop working at this point for us to do the dramatic thing we want to do which was everyone has to work together and fly the ship manually because you know i was thinking the protostar has some pretty crappy shields by the way if one leaky shuttle can can fritz out the whole system <laughs> well but that's the transporter is always a thing that doesn't work when it needs to not work for the story and does work when it needs to work for the story it stopped not just the transporter but it shut down janeway and shut down the autopilot so that that is the protostar can fly in shields up and one leaky shuttle in a cave full of dilithium i guess it must have had this crazy amplifying effect because it basically fritzed out the whole ship. Right. Including Janeway. But it, you know, it created the wonderful scene of them. They needed teamwork and they needed to bring the Enterpriseians on board to push the little jelly bean buttons. <laughs> I did like the jelly bean buttons. Yep. Well, I think, is there anything else we need to say about this episode? No, I, once a season, they let Aaron do something crazy that's super dirty canon related because he, he wrote the one where uh, the Kobayashi. Kobayashi. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to see sometime mid first half of season two and second half of season two uh, what he comes up with next. So am I. All right. Well, let's wrap up with our bits of the week. Why don't you start? Well, mine is thanks to you who pointed me to a fun little bit of Letter Nimoy history from Guitar World magazine, uh, strangely enough, from an upcoming book about Jimi Hendrix. And it's just this fun story about how Letter Nimoy and Jimi Hendrix hung out for a night in Cleveland, Ohio in 1968 and talked to the late in the night about politics and all sorts of stuff when Nimoy was out promoting his second album and he went to a Jimi Hendrix concert and uh, hung he out with Jimi. He didn't open for him or anything. No, that would have been kind of cool. 
<laughs> little Bilbo Baggins before, yeah. <laughs> before Jimmy Hendrix. That would have been awesome. A little uh, maiden wine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, still, I think, it, you know, it's just, God, I mean, could you imagine being in that room in 1968 with I was going to say, that would be more fun than the conversation with all the Star Trek showrunners is the conversation with Leonard Nimoy and Jimi Hendrix. It's a very long article that goes way into detail, so it's worth checking out the link in our show notes. What's your thing of the week? My thing is friend of Trek movie and, and contributor Neil Shirley joined the Enterprise Incidents podcast, which is with Scott Manson, Steve Morris, because I told them that they should book him and then I urged him to do it. This is <laughs> the best I told you so of my life. So <laughs> he went on and did The Way to Eden, which Neil, if you know Neil or you've seen Neil, he sings. He's a big fan of musicals. He actually reviews uh, plays and musicals uh, professionally. And he went on their show and on their podcast and talked in such fantastic detail about the songs and the space hippies and the show. And he sang a little and he made connections to like Star Trek five and Leonard Nimoy's singing career and all these. I mean, they were so happy that he was on as a listener. It was like, I created a gift for myself by asking them to book him. It's like, a, you know, it's so nice to make up the thing that you want to hear and then make it happen by <laughs> encouraging everybody. And Neil had a blast. So uh, we will put up a link to that. But I highly recommend that people go and listen to that. And whether you love The Way to Eden or hate The Way to Eden, you will really enjoy the podcast. I can't wait to listen. Did he bring his ukulele or? He didn't. And they asked him if he brought it. And he was like, oh, but he had to go somewhere else that was quiet to do the recording so um sadly he did not bring it with him oh that's too bad i know he's done some great ukulele stuff um <laughs> but yeah so perfect and it was just such a joy to listen to their podcast is very long and so i usually listen to it in pieces and this was the first time i think i just carved out some time and some things i had to do where i could listen and just listen to it start to <laughs> start to finish because it was so entertaining excellent well, live logs and proverb, everyone. Live logs and proverb. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>